Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, again, we have started services uh, in person this Sunday. Uh, but if you're watching this, then probably you're one that is wanting to stay home and, uh, again, avoid contact with people. Uh, and that's fine. And we are, we are glad that you made the decision. Uh, we want you to be, be wise. Uh, but also we don't want you to be in fear either. Uh, so, uh, we are taking precautions and doing things, uh, to try to keep people safe and keep as, as many things as we can sanitary, uh, and keeping distance with people. So if you are at home, you are watching this, then I invite you to grab your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 42 through 50, and we're kind of concluding uh, th- this ninth chapter of Mark, and through this, uh, what hopefully you've been able to see and you've been witnessing uh, through Jesus' teaching uh, has been very insightful and very helpful for you uh, as a disciple, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. This is kind of a part two of what we saw last week from verses 30 through um through 41. And so today, as we, as we look at this, I want to start by just kind of giving a bit of a confession, uh, to you. Um, my pride has been assaulted through this isolation period. I have discovered, uh, deep levels of pride in my heart and, uh, things that I've not really realized that were there or really identified as what they really are. When I first had to present a sermon to a camera such as this, uh, some of my first thoughts were, well, what am I going to look like on camera? Uh, what kind of uh, production are we going to be able to produce and put out there for people? Um, and I also found myself being consumed with analytics on Facebook and also on our website, and not really for research purposes and, and how we can do a better job. I mean, there's maybe a few little thoughts about that, but it was mainly for my own personal ego, my own pride and selfishness. Now, th- there's so many moments that I've felt through this time of isolation where I've just been overwhelmed, uh, overwhelmed about not knowing what to do or thinking that I'm not doing enough. And where is all this coming from? It's coming from my prideful, self-centered heart. Because I was focused on what I could do and, and uh, really what other people in this world would think of me. I've discovered I'm more insecure than I have really realized. And those insecurities are from not my abundance of humility, but from an abundance of pride and selfishness and arrogance that's in my heart. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, I think we could title as Marks of a True Disciple, because Jesus is going to continue his teaching to his disciples about what being a disciple looks like, what it really means to follow him. And I think we could kind of simplify this down again from last week and into this week. I think we could simplify this down to a disciple is humble of heart. Humility is so important. And hopefully through this time that you've been isolated, that you've been away from people, and, and we've, we've been away from this building, that you have spent some real time alone with God, reflecting upon your heart, reflecting upon who you really are. And that's what I have been doing. Now Jesus, as we look at our passage here, he is hammering his disciples 
about pride and their lack of humility. Jesus has been teaching them what is necessary for following him and, and what is required is humility. They are lacking this. Now, he will warn them of the deadly consequences of causing someone else to stumble, and he also warns them about their own stumbling. So let's go ahead and get into the text. Let's read this in whole, and then we'll walk back through it. And we'll see, we'll discover today that there's really three marks here, I think, of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. Look at verse 42. It says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm dies, uh, does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, we will outline this section today into three parts. And these three marks of what does a true disciple look like. The first mark that we learn of is right here in the very first verse that we read at verse 42. And I think we could title this as a radical concern for others. A radical concern for others. If you look there, verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones... Well, who are these little ones? Well, we, we can't ignore what has already happened, what we've already seen previously, what you saw last week, verse 36, where Jesus, he is talking to his disciples. He is in the house, probably the house of Peter, and he gathers them around, but then he invites a child into the middle of the room, and then he embraces this child. And this is all for a purpose. He's making a point, and he's making a point about humility and receiving the most lowly of individuals, with a humble heart. And this is the sign of true discipleship is, is a humble heart. Now also keep in mind the question that John asked in verse 38, where John asked about this, this person that was casting out demons, but he wasn't traveling with them, and so they tried to stop him. And all of this plays into the context of what Jesus is teaching here in verse 42. Now, this little one that Jesus was referring to, and these little ones that he's referring to, is representative of people who are as a child. These people that are vulnerable, they're easily manipulated, uh, they are weak, and we could even say they are new followers of Jesus. Now, in Matthew's parallel account of this same story here in Mark 9, you can see in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, in verses 3 and 4, it says this, And said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew's telling of this teaching, we see Jesus say that this child is representative of someone who has come to Jesus with an understanding of their insignificance, their vulnerabilities, their weaknesses, and essentially coming to him in humility. 
This child represents followers of Jesus. As he says there in Matthew 18, unless you turn and become like children, unless you humble yourself, unless you're like this child, unless you view yourself as lowly, as insignificant, then you will not have the kingdom of heaven. Now he goes on in verse 42 of Mark 9, he says to cause, right? To cause one of these little ones. What does this mean? Well, he's talking about the stumbling that, that happens here. If you're causing them to stumble. This is worse than having a millstone that would be in reference to what would be attached to a donkey to grind out grain, that kind of weight to it, that it would be hung around your neck and be drowned in the sea. Now, this is not the, the gentle, fun-loving, uh, butterflies and rainbows Jesus that most people like to imagine. Well, he's just this loving Mr. Rogers kind of character. That is not what's described here by Jesus, is it? No, this is very violent, and it's very radical. Now, this statement by Jesus describes a radical concern that we should have for other people a radical concern that we should have for others, and especially Christians. Again, tying back to Matthew 18, these little ones. We should have, have an intense concern for other people, a radical concern for other people's um, uh, personal purity, spiritual purity, because we have a personal responsibility to watch out for other people's spiritual purity. In Romans chapter 14, it helps us discern, like, what does this mean? What does this look like uh, for looking out for other people and their purity? And Paul teaches there in Romans 14 that if someone in their conscience believes something to be sin that is not sin, and you are egging them on to go ahead and do it, and then they follow through in doing it because of your prodding, then you have caused them to violate their conscience, thus them sinning. And you were the cause of it. Now, what Paul is teaching there in Romans is don't use your freedom to cause others to sin. In reading Paul's comments on this thought, you hear his passion for protecting others from sinning and his radical willingness to forego things in order to help others grow in their faith. He is willing to let things go, to not do certain things, to eat certain things, because he knows <clears throat> that it could be a hindrance for these people. Now, maybe they have a limited understanding of the scriptures, or maybe they are coming out of a tradition that had deemed certain things to be sin or certain practices to be sin, <clears throat> and even though the scriptures teach that they're not. And so what we need to do, we need to have an awareness of people's background and a current understanding of the scriptures. <clears throat> and this helps us to make, <clears throat> to not make uh, this devastating mistake of causing others to violate their conscience, to sin. We need to make a better effort in getting to know people and, and know who they are, knowing their backgrounds, so that we can help guard against causing the causing of stumbling in their life. So if you don't really know somebody, you don't really understand who they are or where they came from, you, you don't really have any kind of background on them, it's really hard to be able to do this. And so we need to approach with caution, we need to approach lots of questions of the person and getting to know who they are so that we might not sin against them or cause them to sin. And so 
There are some who might say, well, you know, I'm free to eat whatever I want. I'm free to drink whatever I want. I go where I want, dress how I want, because I'm under grace and not under the law. Well, this type of thinking that is disconnected from considering the impact of those around them is simply immature and selfish. It is our pride that leads us to believe that we can do whatever we want, and it doesn't matter what happens to someone else as a result of what we have done, and blame the assembly that happens to others solely upon others. This is selfish and immature. Because a lot of the times we are the main factor of why this has happened. And Jesus is given the warning here, a very radical warning against this. So a true disciple of Jesus is one who has a radical concern for the well-being of other people's souls, willing to do whatever or willing to avoid whatever so that it might not cause them to sin. There might be moments of ignorance about the people around you that then whatever you do might cause them to sin, but I don't think this is what Jesus is talking about here, and I don't think that's what Paul is referring to in Romans 14, that you have done something out of the ignorance of those around you and it has caused them to sin. I believe that Jesus is talking about, and Paul is talking about, knowing and not caring. That you know that these people are immature, you know that they are are young in their faith, and you go ahead and do things, say things, go certain places, and you don't really care the effect. You don't really care how that's going to create a problem. And this is the problem I think Jesus is addressing and Paul is addressing in Romans 14. We, we need to know and we need to care. So when Jesus says that it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and you drowned in the sea than causing one of these little ones to sin, he's using this radical statement to drive home the fact that there needs to be extreme measures taken for us to guard against other people's uh, sinning, to, to guard them against uh, stumbling. Is that what's in your heart? Do you have a radical concern for others? I think this is the first mark of a true disciple, that we have that, that we're feeling that. And now, the, the next section here in verses 43 through 48, I think we get the second mark, the second mark of a true disciple And it is an intense hatred for sin. An intense hatred for sin. Now, if you look at these verses, we see there's a contrast that's happening here from verse 42. In verse 42, it deals with causing someone else to sin. And in this section, we see Jesus is talking about someone's own personal sinning, their own stumbling. If you look at verse 43, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, this is not literal, this is hyperbole, meaning that this is an exaggerated statement to, to, to make a point. It's not to be taken literally. Jesus is not saying that there should be a literally, a literal cutting off of body parts, of the hand, of the foot, of the eye, because he's already established earlier in Mark chapter 9 that the body, the body parts, they are not the core issue. They are not the problem of the sin. We see that it's the self in chapter 7, or the nature is the problem. And the internal man causes the external man to sin. The self causes oneself to sin. It's not external things. It wasn't just, it wasn't your hand. No, 
Who's your heart? Who's your thinking? But also here, we know that this is not literal because the Old Testament forbids self-mutilation. So Jesus is not going to violate that law. He's not going to go against that. And so we know that this is not literal. He's not literally saying cut off your hand or cut off your foot or, or tear out your eye because it goes against what the Old Testament teaches. But also we've already seen in chapter 7 that this is just not the case. So Jesus uses three different body parts in this section, three different body parts to drive this point home repeatedly. He uses the hand in verse 43. He uses the foot, uh, secondly, in verse 45. And then, third of all, he uses the eye. Now, losing any of these would be a great loss to the body. But maybe losing the eye would be worse than the other two. And Jesus is driving home the importance of dealing with sin, And that's why he uses these three important parts of the body. Sin must be dealt with, with an intense hatred for it. And this is the view that we should have towards sin in our life. That we would be willing to cut it off. Any kind of physical deformity would disqualify any priest from performing his duties. But also any deformity would deny full access to the average person to the temple. Deformities would make people ritualistically unclean. They would not be able to to do the normal rituals and be accepted into that worship. And Jesus is teaching here that any deformity to one's character, character or integrity is far worse than any physical deformity that can happen. Deformity, such as pride in one's spirit, will hold them outside of eternal life which is far more serious than any kind of physical deformity that would make somebody ritually unclean. If only our spiritual deformities were as easily identified as our physical ones. How how often is it whenever you, you, you twist your ankle and you realize how important that foot is? You realize how important it is to have two feet that you can walk and without limping or without crutches. Or if you've ever broken an arm or a hand, you realize how important it is to have two. Or if you've gotten something in your eye or been able to, to not see out of your eye for some time, you realize how important those parts are. And Jesus is saying, those do not matter compared to your soul. Those things that we... We hold as so important in the physical world, he says, they they pale in comparison to the purity of your heart. Jesus has been warning them about this. Up until this point, he has been warning them continually about this happening, about their stumbling. It is not external things that we need to be concerned about, but it is the internal such as our pride, such as our arrogance, like what we're seeing here with John's question, and this question of, well, who's greater? Well, we are, we are in a, a terrible place when we ignore the internal and we only focus on the external. Some of us look really good on the outside. It seems like we got everything put together on the outside, but internally we are a train wreck. We are wicked and evil, we are prideful, we are arrogant. 
So let me ask you, are we actively fighting and warring against sin? Are you actively fighting and warring against sin? Are we going to drastic measures to make sure sin does not survive in our lives? In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul writes this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Probably the the best book written in dealing with personal sin outside of the Bible is the Puritan John Owen's The Mortification of Sin. The Mortification of Sin. And really, probably the most famous quote from this little book is this. He says, do you mortify? Now, let me bring it to modern English and how we understand that word mortify. We think of mortify as like a, a terrified kind of moment, being afraid of something. But there's also another definition of mortify. And it means this, to subdue, to self-denial, to be in self-discipline. And so when he asks this question, do you mortify? That's what he's meaning. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Owen goes on and says this, Now, it being our duty to mortify, to be killing sin, whilst it is in us, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, doth but half his work. Owen also says, Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness, against every degree we grow to. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the neck of his lust. He who doth not kill sin in his way takes no steps toward his journey's end. He who finds no uh, not opposition from it and who sets not himself in every particular to its mortification is at peace with it and not dying to it. Do you have an intense hatred for your sin? I know how easy it is to look at other people and be in so uh, such uh, uh, intense hatred for their sin and, and what they're doing. And, and you see a group of people or a practice and, and you just have this anger dwell up in you toward their sin. But the question is, do you have an intense hatred for your sin? Are you cutting sin off or are you just picking at it? You haven't cut the hand off, no, you... You're just picking at the problem. Have you torn sin out of your life or are you just merely scratching the surface? As Owen says, we must be committed to the death of sin in our lives, not merely just inflicting some wounds to it. Are we actively killing it? What is causing you to sin? What is causing you to sin? And then what are you doing about it? If the answer is nothing, we have a major problem. And this is the problem that Jesus is addressing here. You must be actively fighting against it. Why should you have an intense hatred for sin? Because of where it leads to. Because where sin takes you. It takes you to hell. Look at verse 43. 
He used this word hell. Now, in the Greek, it's this word Gehenna, which is a reference to the Hinnom Valley there in Jerusalem. It's on the southwest side of the old city of Jerusalem. It's part of a, a, a kind of a, a V that runs in these valleys going up to Mount Zion. And this is the place where Ahaz and, and Manasseh, they sacrificed children to the false god Molech in this place. And Jeremiah, he made a prophecy about this place that it would be renamed the Valley of Slaughter. And you see this in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 30 through 34. And because this would be the place where the Babylonians, when they, would, when they came into Jerusalem, that after they'd slaughtered so many people and taken others captive, that they would throw the corpses into this valley and be named the Valley of Slaughter. This nation, Israel, this nation that had allowed the slaughter of their children They were later slaughtered themselves and they were discarded in this place just like they discarded their children. And Jesus uses this place, this reference, as a symbol of what eternal death will be. As with all symbols, they lack the impact of the actual thing they're representing. So this place that these disciples would know all too well, that they've they've walked by, they have seen, This place of death and of rot, this is only a small representation of what eternal hell will be. This text should answer the question for anyone doubting that there is a hell or whether Jesus believed or taught that there would be a a place where people would go to such as hell. Again, Jesus is using an actual familiar location to, to point to the real eternal place for souls that love their sin. For people who do not mortify their sin, for all who are not at war with their sin. It is a real place that many, many will suffer their fate there. Because they will not humble themselves before God. They will not fight against sin. They, they love their body too much. They love their flesh too much. They love their sin too much that they will not humble themselves before God. And they will suffer this fate. Now let me answer a question for some of you because probably some of you, as we read through this this text here, you noticed something. You probably noticed something in the ESV that it was missing two verses, 44 and 46. And, and these are not included in the ESV because these two verses are not found in the earliest and best manuscripts um, of what the ESV translators used uh, in translating this version of the Bible. Now, if you have a King James or a new King James, then you have probably noticed that they are included. But also notice what verse 48 says. Uh, It says the exact same thing as 44 and 46. And so most scholars, they would say that the scribe that was was, um, recording this in the manuscript that the King James is, is pulled from, that the scribe was taking a liberty with verse 48 and inserted it under 44 and 46 to drive the point home. And so look at verse 48. Verse 48 says, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now this comes from Isaiah chapter 66 verse 24, which connects to what Jeremiah was prophesying about. What would happen to the people of Jerusalem? Unrepentant people will suffer this fate. They will suffer in this place, this this hell. They will spend an eternity in place where there's no relief from the torment of God's wrath. 
If you would notice there in verse 45 and 47, it says that the person would be thrown into hell. The question that you should ask from this is, well, who's doing the throwing? Who's chucking these people into this place? And the answer is God. God is the judge. He is the executioner. I've heard people say, well, God won't send anybody to hell, that they'll go there on their own. Well, not according to Jesus, not according to this this passage, Jesus is saying that God is going to be the one that's going to throw people into this place, that he is the one that's going to throw them to this place of eternal torment, eternal judgment. He is a just, he is a holy God, and he is the one that's going to do this. Notice also that Jesus does not say that sin is going to be thrown into this place, but he says the sinner will be thrown into this place. You might say, well, you know, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Well, what do you do with these verses? If, if that's the catchy statement that you want to use, what do you do with these verses? And the reality is this, is that the only way that God will love the sinner is by way of the cross of Jesus Christ. He will not love the sinner unless it's through the cross. And this is why Jesus is so important, vitally important, because God will not love the sinner unless it's through his son. We must have the cross. And it's at the cross that we have the intersection of God's judgment and God's mercy. But those that will not humble themselves that will not have an intense hatred for their sin, they will suffer the intense wrath of God. Why should we have an intense hatred for sin? Because God has an intense hatred for sin. He is not neutral toward your sin. He is not neutral toward your behaviors or your thinking. And God is not looking at just the external things that you produce, but he sees your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you've done He knows better than you do. Just as I have been reflecting upon my own heart, God already knew those things. He has already seen those things. But by the grace of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, I have been forgiven. The the third mark is in the last two verses that we have here, 49 and 50. And the third mark, I think we could title as Endure Through Humility. So first of all, we need, to, we need to have a radical concern for other people. We need to have an intense hatred toward our sin. And also, we need to endure through humility. Look at verse 49 again. Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. What, what is he meaning here? What does this mean? Well, the the culture is very helpful here. The Old Testament is very helpful here. And I think understanding what this means. In this culture, certain sacrifices, they were powdered with salt. And then they were consumed with fire. And we see this out of Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus is implying that his followers will be these kinds of sacrifices. They will be salted and they, they will be consumed in this fire. They will be living sacrifices. Just as what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Disciples of Jesus, they will be salted and they will suffer fire as well. Now, the term fire is really important here. And there's a contrast that needs to be made and needs to be shown here. Because of what we see through verses 43 through 48, it's used in a different context and a different way. It's reference to divine judgment. And the contrast is that this earlier fire in 43 through 48 is reference to the destruction of the wicked and to the unrepentant, the unbelieving. But here, it's used in the opposite direction. It's not for destruction, but it's for purification, for preservation. And so believers, they are purified through suffering and persecution. And Jesus promised us that we would suffer. He promised his disciples that they would face these things that would be hard and devastating and trials, fire, if you will. He promised this to his disciples here, but to all. And this is that word, everyone. For everyone, everyone that would be like a child, that would be humbly coming to Jesus and following Jesus, everyone will be salted with fire. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's saying, don't be surprised at these things. We shouldn't be surprised as believers. But we should understand that all suffering has deep meaning and a deep purpose to it. It's not meaningless. The, the things that are happening, even now, they are not meaningless and they are not without purpose because God is the one that gives meaning and purpose to all things, even suffering, even the suffering of his saints. If you look at verse 50, he says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Keeping the same vein of thought with salt, Jesus turns in another direction here using that. Well, salt will never lose its saltiness unless it's mixed with other chemicals. Now, for those that would like to say, well, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about because he's saying that salt can lose its saltiness. Well, he's not wrong because whenever you mix salt with other chemicals, it will lose its saltiness, like what would happen whenever they would extract salt out of the Dead Sea or from around the Dead Sea. It would have a mixture of other chemicals, thus making the salt not as valuable as pure salt because the salt would lose its saltiness over time. So again, I think a great question to ask here is this. Have you mixed your Christian life with other things? Has your Christian faith, your Christian life been merged with the culture? With American ideas? Have you merged the values of the culture with the values of Christianity? Have you put these two things together that don't really go together? Jesus is saying here that this is impossible. And in doing so, it, it reduces the value, it strips away the value that it's actually just worthless. Does your faith carry its weight in salt? Or is your faith following the form of cultural Christianity where you know all the right answers? You, you can give all the right words and phrases, but there's really... There's no radical concern for other people in their personal growth and holiness and pursuit of righteousness. 
that also that there's no intense hatred for sin. The salt must be pure for it to be stable and for it to last. It must be pure. It can't be merged other things. It cannot have other things involved. And so what about your faith? Is your faith stable? Is it going to last? Is your faith really salt? Or is it something else? We have too much of this happening in our American society today. And, and I think this, this virus is proving some of this. It's proving what, what is real, what is not. What is real in a Christian's life and what is not. I know that this has been something for me, again, as I've confessed to you, that has been a reality of seeing what is, what is true and what is right. And what has, again, been mixed with other things. Jesus goes on here in verse 50. He says, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. Now we're told in the New Testament that there's a couple things that should be in us. Jesus says, have salt in you. But what does that even mean? Well, there's a couple things that should be living in us, according to the New Testament. And one of those things is the word of Christ. We're, we're told this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that the, that the word of Christ should dwell in us, should live in us. We are also told that the fruit of the Spirit should be in us. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit should be in us, should be dwelling in us. So this salt that Jesus is talking about, we could say, is the word of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. These two things working in us. This is the salt that's in us. But also, there in Galatians chapter 5, where it talks about the fruits of the Spirit, notice the last two verses there in verse 25 and 26 of Galatians chapter 5. And Paul writes this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So what does having salt in you mean? Well, I think Paul is connecting the idea of the fruit of the Spirit in us to our walking in step with the Spirit, because that only makes sense, doesn't it? If the Spirit is in us, if if the Word of Christ is in us, then it's going to force us to move in this direction, that we're going to walk in step with Him. And it's going to lead us to a place of humility, And this is the last verse that he writes in verse 26. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Uh, What is at the core of those things? Humility. Humility. Humility is the preservative that has been lacking in these disciples and is so lacking in us at times. With the word of Christ in us and the Holy Spirit's presence in us, it should be producing what Paul is saying there in verse 26. It should be producing humility in us. If I have the word of Christ in me, the spirit living in me, the way that I'm walking, the fruit that's coming out of my life, it should, it's coming from humility. The 19th century pastor Charles Simeon, he called humility the true nature of Christianity. Humility, the true nature of Christianity in the full context of what Jesus is teaching his disciples here, what's at the core of this? From verse 30 all the way down through verse 50, what is at the core of all of this? It is humility. This is the true nature of Christianity. A humble heart. The mark of a true disciple 
is humility. Jesus goes on, the last thing he says there in verse 50, says, and be at peace with one another. Very familiar to what Paul said in Galatians 5, right? Be at peace with one another. Now, why were they fighting? Because they lacked humility. Why were they arguing about who's greater? Because they lacked humility. Why do we lack peace? Why do we argue? Because we lack humility. It's, it's humility that is so important. Having the salt of humility in ourselves helps to preserve the peace that is desperately needed in the church, that's desperately needed in the home, that's desperately needed at work, at school. When pride is involved, there will be no peace. And it doesn't matter the situation, it doesn't matter the conversation. If, if we are not humble, there will not be peace. Humility is at the core of all righteous pursuits. Humility is at the core of it. When the Bible talks about forgiveness, there must be humility. When the Bible speaks of gentleness, there must be humility. When the Bible teaches that we must be meek, there must be humility. When Jesus says to be at peace with one another, there must be humility. If we are to endure persecution, trials, temptations, this evil world, we must be humble. Humility helps us endure these things. And this is a mark of true discipleship of Jesus. A true disciple of Jesus is one who has a radical concern for others and the purity of other souls. They are also, they, they have an intense hatred for sin, which both of these are driven by what? A humble heart. If you believe that God is in control of this world, and he is good, he is just, he is holy, then we should live free from the need to try and control every situation or to dominate other people. We should live at peace with others. And how do we live at peace with others? Again, at the core of all what Jesus has been teaching, it's humility. Humility will help you endure and will help you endure these times today. So the questions are simply this. Do you have do you have a radical concern for other people? Is there an intense hatred for your sin? And are you enduring with humility? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, God, we we come to you humbly, understanding that we are nothing compared to you. We believe ourselves to be something. We, we live in this, this world that is so physical. It's visual, it's tangible. But God, in your word, you have shown us repeatedly again and again that it's the things in which we cannot see that are the most important things. God, I would ask that you would, you would give clarity you would peel back the layers of deceit in our own hearts today. That we would see, we would see that we need to have a radical concern for others. That we need to have an intense hatred for our own personal sin. And God, we desperately need humility so that we can endure. We thank you for, for Christ. We thank you for Jesus. 
and that he is this perfect example of all three of these things. He's not calling his disciples to do something that he was not. He was humble. He had a radical concern for other people's holiness and righteousness. He had an intense hatred for sin. And one of those intense hatreds of sin was pride. God, again, help us, help me see my pride for what it is. To not sugarcoat it or or to put lipstick on it, to dress it up as something that it's not. God, help me to see the reality of the wickedness of pride. Lord, we thank you for a humble Savior, a Savior that gave his life willingly, humbly, that he did not revile in return, but he was merciful. We lift high the name of Jesus. It's because of him that we can have the Spirit in us, that the word of Christ can dwell in us, that we can live a life of humility. So we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.